You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Sermon text from today is from Acts 1. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is God's word. Thank you. Thank you, Jess, for reading that. And good morning, everyone. I'm, uh, we are so glad to have those here who are visiting with us today. If we haven't met, I am Chad, one of the pastors um, here at King's Cross. And if we have not met and shaken hands, please, before you leave here today, be sure. I'm going to be back here at this back table. Aaron mentioned that, catching up with us. Love to meet you. Love to put a gift in your hand uh, from us to you. Because we believe that the kingdom of God is like Jesus says, is at hand in advancing, and we want to welcome all those in our city and in our community that are part of his work to change lives. Um, we're in Acts chapter 1. Normally we, uh, we do series through the, book of the books of the Bible, and right now we're transitioning. You're, you're here for a great Sunday because it's the very first one in Acts. Um, we're starting a new book, and we're getting into this text to, to really look at what are the first things for the church. The, the priorities for the church. We have a lot of bombardment of mixed messages. Churches that are about a lot of different things. Even, even people who would presume to take the pulpit and speak on behalf of God and spew all kinds of evil things or different things or different agendas. We're a people of the book. We believe as King's Cross that God has given us his word and he has shown us what is first and primary. And as we look at the book of Acts, we want to pray that God's Spirit would fill us so that he can make evident through both what I'm speaking today, but also in your own hearts, that the Holy Spirit would bear testimony what is true and what is good, and that he would make us more like Christ. Could you join me today before we we begin? Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity to even 
read your word, to have your word, to be able to preach it, expound it. God, that you would give us any insight into who you are is beyond beautiful and amazing. You are lovely and gracious and kind. And Father, I pray it would be evident even as we read in this first chapter of Acts, the beginning of your church through the apostles. Lord, that we be moved, that we be changed, and that we see more clearly the work of Christ as you advance your kingdom here on earth. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Because it's the first time uh, we're getting into Acts, I want to provide a little bit of an introduction to, to what's going on here, if you're not familiar. Acts is written by a man by the name of Luke. He was actually a doctor, someone who was a... Um, um, I'm trying to think of the correct way. He's a friend of Paul's. <laughs> he was a traveling companion, if you will, for Paul. And spent time traveling with him uh, and the early apostles as the church and the story unfolds in Acts. And Luke decided to create a collection of firsthand accounts that he organized into these volumes of the Gospel of Luke. Maybe you've heard of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, Luke, he wrote that one, bears his name. But then also the book of Acts what we're about to look into today. And it's pretty clear by people studying uh, these two books that they were intended from the beginning to be a complete compilation. He's the only one who wrote the Gospels, or one of the Gospels, who then intended to go forward to write Acts. They both are introduced to the same person by the name of Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus is. There's lots of speculation. Uh, It's clear he's probably some Roman person. He might be an official. He gives him a high title. And talks to him reverently, so he's probably someone of importance. And he gives him the introduction in the beginning of Luke, and he gives it to him in the beginning of Acts. And he has written these for him as a record first of, the, of Jesus from his birth through his death, his resurrection and descendants back into heaven in Luke. And then he moves on into Acts in the early church after Jesus ascends. And what goes on with his apostles after he leaves? Now, it's clear that he is a, he's an educated man who intentionally writes these books very thoughtfully, and he puts these together in a fashion which is common at the time for histories. He's demonstrating that he spent time with people to learn about what really happened and to record those things. He even tells Theophilus he wrote it for him so that he would be sure of what he's heard and what he's been instructed in. So he wanted to provide some context and some confidence in his writing. He says, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So he brings together an orderly account. Matter of fact, it's probably, not un, un, it's probably not by accident that they both cover about a span of 30 years. It's not by accident that both of them run about the same, near the same length. It's in the time of writing volumes, it wasn't because he's like, you know what, I want to write two books. I might have a series. Maybe it's going to go out. It's going to, we're going to have the first one tease it, and then I'm going to go with the second. He probably meant for it to be one full long story on purpose, but there was limitations. They had scrolls, long scrolls, papyrus scrolls, which were about 40 feet long. And both of these stories in Greek of about medium height would run about 30 to 35 feet, roughly. So he had to get one scroll done. He's like, I'll set this aside and I'm going to go to the next one. And it's important because he writes Luke in view of Acts and he writes Acts looking back at Luke. And there's ways in which he's fulfilling things in Acts that he tells us in Luke. In each of the Gospels, as you read them, remember, they're written by a different person, by God's inspiration, and giving some focal points that shift us a little bit. 
And for Luke, he's a Greek doctor who's really, really geeked up about the fact that God would bring his gospel outside of Israel and give it to all the Gentiles. That's his, that's his big excitement. It's probably why he's the one guy that said, I'm going to also write about how that gospel went forward into the rest of the world. Big themes in Luke, he talks about constantly that the, the gospel is going to go outside to the, to the Gentiles. And then in Acts, he says, this is how it happens. We know he was probably, or, he was very organized and, and brought together accounts because Luke wasn't around during Jesus' ministry. At least he wasn't with them at the time. Yet he has the longest narrative of the birth of Jesus. It's evident from his, his accounts that he spent time with people sitting down, likely sitting down across the table from the mother of Jesus, Mary, and getting her part of the story. That's why we get Luke 2 and her song that she sings, her Magnificat. And we see that Luke focuses on Gentiles. He focuses on the roles of women in that early church and the way in which they work. It's not, it's not a surprise that he would mention that the apostles were united in prayer and specifically says with the women, including Mary, his mother. And so we know all of these things as we go into this, and we see that Paul is writing in a fashion that is intended to be clear, articulate, organized, so that we can understand and done in a very common style of great histories of that time. Aristotle was a philosopher who said that the task of history is to be concerned with human deeds or, in the Greek, praxis. Someone who's a contemporary historian of Luke actually said, his name is Quintilian, that history is the narration of deeds. And then they were in a tradition of a, of a historian named Polybius who also argued that the task of the historian was to teach and persuade the lover of knowledge by means of true deeds and speech. And Luke says at the beginning, he wants you to be convinced of these things, so he records these deeds for you. So what are the deeds that he is compiling? He's compiling a narrative of events or deeds, and he says in the beginning of Luke, that happened among us. It's another indicator that the stories go together because Luke wasn't there with Jesus, but he says us because he's there in Acts. What deeds are he talking about? He's talking about Jesus' deeds in Luke, his praxis. And in the second part, after Jesus leaves in Acts, he's talking about the apostles' deeds. Matter of fact, the word praxis, deeds, is where we get the title Acts. The deeds of the apostles or the Acts, the things that they've done. What are the deeds that he's talking about? It's important for us to consider why does it matter and what are these deeds. Histories were written to record great deeds of the people that they write about. Well, if we look at both the texts back and forth, we see between the two that in Acts verses 1 through 3, chapter 1, he says that I wrote first this narrative to Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke's a doctor. He cares about facts. He says Jesus gave many convincing proofs. Paul says that he came and appeared to 500 people in his resurrected state. He wanted no doubt with the people who would claim to follow him. It's why at the transition of, from into our century that we call current era, era, was so radical because 
Thousands and thousands of people were abandoning the history of religion and gods that they had served in their countries because of this Jesus that came and this kingdom of God that they preached about. It says that he spoke about the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? What exactly do we mean by that? Well, really, in plain sense, we're talking about his rule and his reign. God's reign. What's a kingdom? What's a king doing in a kingdom? He is sovereign. He has authority. He oversees. He commands. He gives those things out. And the kingdom of God quite clearly is his rule. But, okay, if we look out, right, out anybody seen God sitting on a throne recently out here somewhere? You know, do we go on TV like we would with our president and see him like behind a podium ruling and reigning like that? No, we don't. We don't see him right now. We don't see him in that very present visible sense. So we can ask questions like, well, is that really him ruling and reigning? I mean, if he's doing it, actually the way that they level the accusation would be he's not doing a really great job because look at how terrible things are in our world. This guy's just, if he's out here ruling and reigning and he's supposed to be a good God, how come I see so much evil? How come I see so much darkness? How come he hasn't made everything right? We had a previous series where we talked about the kingdom of light coming into the world. And we discussed the fact that, that this world is and has been, before Christ, overrun with darkness. And when Christ came into this world, the way John describes it is that the light came into this world. And he came in Christ, but there's this tension between already and not yet. And what I mean by that is that in Christ, the kingdom has come. He continued some 162 times the word kingdom shows up in the Gospels. It is what Jesus is about. And most of those times is about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And so he comes and brings the kingdom, but not yet because he has not finally culminated in what we see described in end-time literature like Revelation and Daniel in finally bringing the kingdom to bear and crushing all that is dark in this world. And when we talk about this, the reason that we know that he is waiting is because he wants many, many more to come to him. Many, many more to come under his rule and authority. Many more to worship and honor him as king and to be saved from the darkness. If we look at Luke, Jesus also expounds on what it means when he's, preach, when he's teaching about the kingdom in Acts 1, 1 through 3. Because in Luke 24, 44 through 47... He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. He also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you're empowered from on high. That key focus point is this. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Jesus came that he might proclaim God's rule and that forgiveness is available for all those who have followed after darkness. That's what he's culminating. That's what he's starting and in Luke, when he says, I am sending you what my father promised, stay in the city until you're empowered on high. Before he leaves, he has promised to give power to his disciples, and he has said that they will be his witnesses. The same thing is read in Acts, 
when he tells them, you've heard me speak about it, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. That's what he's promising to his disciples. He's promising that the Spirit will come on them and they will have power as, as his witnesses. And then they ask a question in Acts 1, chapter 6. They ask this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? Now, there's often times we can criticize the disciples. We can look at what they ask. We can look at what they talk about. We can say, hey, put your foot in your mouth. Peter cut off a dude's ear uh, when he wasn't supposed to. Um, actually, at one point, Jesus calls Peter Satan. If the Son of God refers to you as Satan, or at least something you just said, you're probably in the wrong. Okay, so they're not always getting it right. But in this scenario, this is not a weird question. Jesus has been sending, spending 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. And when he said the Spirit's coming, they, li- they knew their Bible. And they likely thought about the prophet Joel, because in Joel, we're told that in the end days, when God restores the kingdom, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. He's saying my spirit will go out on everyone. So when they heard that in Joel, they're thinking, hey, does that mean you're restoring the kingdom? Because they see this tight little window, right? They go, that means restoring the kingdom. The Spirit's coming. That means you must be doing something. You must be bringing all things new right now. I have, a little, I have little kids. I have four kids, okay? My youngest is four. When, when a child is little, time doesn't have a lot of concept to them, does it? I mean, can you, when you have a little kid and you're like, we're going to go to the beach, it's always tomorrow. Like there's a vacation coming up. Whenever they did something, it was yesterday, no matter when it was. They got like this no comprehension. And in some ways, as God's, as God's children, we'll fall into this, this, this kind of scenario where we don't know his timing and his purposes. And they're excited. And they're like, does that mean it's coming now? Is it today? Are you doing it now? But Jesus responds to them and he says, no, it's not for you to know the times of the periods that the Father has set. It's not for you. Rather, you are to wait how many people love to wait? I love to wait. I don't love to wait. I was at somewhere one time where someone said, who likes instant gratification? And nobody raised their hand because we don't like participating. But he's like, most people like instant gratification. If you can have that. And Jesus specifically tells them, no, you need to wait. It's not for you to know when it comes. In fact, we know that later elsewhere in Luke, The reason that it takes so long to come is that the kingdom of God is described like a mustard seed that's planted. And that mustard seed grows into a tree. And as a large tree, it covers the entire world that the birds of the sky nest in its branches. Why does God make that connection? He also talks about leaven in bread, that it slowly moves to grow and leaven the entire dough. Well, in this case... It's because Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples that though the kingdom of God and God's rule is starting now, it's starting first in you, and it will cover the entire world. Luke has this account of the mustard seed, and Matthew records the account of the mustard seed. When Matthew talks about the mustard seed, he is a Jewish man, and he talks about how this small seed is so small, this tiny seed. And he's, he's trying to impress on them that you, Israel, who's so small— from you and from what God brings here is going to grow into the entire world to bless all nations. 
But, but instead, Luke here is concerned about the birds. He says this, this tree covers the whole world. And in covering the whole world, all birds of all varieties get to rest in its branches. It's also similar to Daniel, who does the exact same prophecy when he says in chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, In the visions of my mind, I was lying in bed. I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached the sky, and it was visible to the end of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant, and on, the, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter in it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. So from the prophet Daniel all the way to Jesus in the New Testament, the plan from the beginning was that the kingdom of God would start small and grow into a tree that would bless the entire world. That it would advance and grow throughout the world. But how does it happen? Well, verse 8 is the clue. Matter of fact, verse 8 of chapter 1 can be seen as somewhat of the theme for the entire book of Acts. How is it that God is going to do this? How is he going to grow the kingdom of God? How is he going to, as we've titled this, advance the kingdom? Verse 8, if you read with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's it. That's what's recorded. That's what, that's what Luke talks about in the rest of Acts. The fact that the Holy Spirit comes with power in, God's, in Christ's disciples and that they are his witnesses then in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As a matter of fact, that's somewhat of an outline. As organized as, Paul, as Luke is, if you read the rest, he has a section where he talks about things that happened in Jerusalem. He moves on to when the gospel comes to Judea and when Philip takes it to Samaria. And then it goes on to the rest of the nations, ending finally in Rome, which is the center of the known world. It's an outline of the path. It's a profound yet simple mission. With all the misunderstandings, with all the misrepresentations of what Christ is about, with all of the sidetracks, with all of the legalism and all of the different kinds of rules and regulations that are outside the kingdom that we try to, like, like Jesus refers to scribes, lay as heavy burdens on his people. Christ's mission is so simple. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Have you read the rest? He didn't send his son to condemn the world. Why did he send his son? To save the world through him. In verse 18, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. Jesus was not sent into the world to condemn the world for its sin, but rather to rescue the world out of darkness. And the tree, which is the kingdom of God, that life-giving source of God, was going to grow from this ragtag group of apostles who were just waiting on the Spirit to come. To rescue the nations from darkness. You know, we can look at this account of Acts as mythical, as fantastical, but we have to remember the mis the, the, what seems to be miraculous things in this text, and they are, don't get me wrong, the power of the Spirit moves in miraculous ways, happens over the course of 30 years. Luke's hitting the highlights. In a lifetime of 30 years, have you not seen miracles as a believer if you're in him? Have you not seen him work in ways that you can't explain? 
especially with the apostles, I mean, they're unique in the fact that they're starting the church, and we know that they're unique, but the advance continues beyond them. The advance continues today in his present church. God's kingdom continues to advance today. And because of what he writes here in Acts 1-8, I want to suggest, and we're going to look at with this text here in chapter 1 as we move through it, I want to give you a real brief outline which points to really an outline of what God's doing, how Jesus is advancing the kingdom, and how that connects with us today. And we're going to see it all the way through the rest of the book. First, we're going to say that Jesus advances God's kingdom. Jesus is the one that advances God's kingdom, and he does it by the power of the Holy Spirit through the faith of his disciples. Look at Jesus advancing his kingdom in verses 1, 1 and 2 there, chapter 1. I wrote this first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The first book is about Jesus beginning to do and teach. The next is what continues to come out of that. And in it all, Jesus is the one who's advancing God's kingdom. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was just getting started. Luke 24, 46-47, he tells his disciples that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. He's the one that suffers. He's the one that rises from the dead. And he's the one for which forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And in Matthew, another Gospel, chapter 16 and 18, he explicitly tells the disciples that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Meaning that darkness is ruling right now, but I'm going to build my church, guys. I'm going to come in here and plant the seed, which is going to grow and bless the entire world. Advancing God's kingdom doesn't mean that we work harder. Okay? That's an important thing to take away. Any gardeners or people who've worked on a farm in their life? Huh? Plants? Frustration? I see that hand. There's a farmer. No green thumbs in here? Nobody's in here? Okay. Maybe. They use agricultural references and illustrations a lot, often because that's a society that they live in. They understood that. Um, There's a sense in which the pressure is off of us, but there's also a need for us to work. Now, can you by any force and power within you make plants grow? Anybody got magic? You're just standing there like, it's done. But the illustration that is often given is that we plant and we water. And what it says in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. See, God is the one in Christ that is advancing his kingdom. And it's only in the sense that he's the one that can change people and not us that the, the kingdom is going to advance. At the same time, just like a gardener who waters and plants, for the grass or for the plants to grow. I don't have any grass in my yard. Anybody got grass in your yard? My wife says, we'll get some. Um, It's the Father's pleasure to work through us. He wants to work through his children. He wants to work through his children, and he wants us, as it says in this text, to be his witnesses. And so Jesus is the one that does the work to advance his gospel. He's the one that works through his witnesses. And it's not by our own power, but what power is it? He advances his kingdom by the power of, of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 1 through 8. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Jesus was giving the example to his apostles that even him as a man was doing and working and being through the Holy Spirit. 
After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He has promised them to be baptized, submerged, engulfed in the Holy Spirit in a few days. And then when they ask him, are you going to restore the kingdom? We, we already looked at this in verse 7. He responds by saying, it's not for you to know those times, but, verse 8, but, you don't need to worry about that, but, remember he's focusing our attention. That's his way of saying, don't worry about those times, but, by the way, the word but, just so you guys know, anybody, if you're in a relationship, it totally cancels whatever you just said ahead. Did you know that? Like if you're like, listen, you're a really great person, but, you feel that? You feel that weight? You know, I love you. You know, you, you, you're, you're, you're one, you're my, you're absolutely my favorite person at my office, but Jesus says, don't worry about that stuff, but you will be baptized, no, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Both of them are clearly indicative. They're not commands. It's not saying, hey guys, you're my followers. You need to go ahead and be filled by the Spirit. You need to go ahead and be my witnesses. He says, you will have my Spirit. That you will be my witnesses. That as you have faith in me, as you're my followers, I know and I promise the Holy Spirit resides and lives in you. And that you are my witnesses in this world. Those who are disciples have the Spirit in them. And that Spirit bears witness to them that they are, as Romans says, that we are God's children. The Spirit teaches, it leads, it convicts, it empowers, it gives gifts. It's the transformational power of God in His children. It enables us to bear good fruit for the kingdom. And it gives us the words to say when we don't know what to speak. That's what Luke says in his chapter 12 of the gospel. Don't worry about how you defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. And Jesus promises his disciples, you're going to be my witness. Don't worry about it. I'm going to give you the power of my spirit. So now we know Jesus advances his kingdom. Jesus promises his his Holy Spirit, the power of God is in his children to do the work he's asked them to do, and he's going to do it through the faith of his disciples. We're going to go 4 through 26. This is a chunk of this section, but there's some very interesting stories here that I think gives evidence to what do I mean by the faith of his disciples. Well, Jesus specifically says, you're going to be my witnesses. Well, how are we his witnesses? Well, what does faith mean, really? We have to have faith in him, that's how we're his witnesses. In fact, it says that the righteous themselves will walk by faith. And what does faith mean? Well, it's faith in the rule of King Jesus. The king that is the name above every name. Why is evil so pervasive in the world? Why do we still hurt and harm one another? It's not that God in Christ is not on the throne. It's that there's so many in this world who still do not submit to his rule. 
And Habakkuk 2, Romans 1, Galatians 3, Hebrews 10, every single one of those passages say that the righteous before God are those who walk by faith in the Son. Faith changes your life and makes you a witness for him. Anybody ever done a trust fall? There's not a lot of stuff like that happening around here, huh? I, my daughter, that I mentioned before, she's four years old, and, and, and she hasn't grown old enough to lose trust in me. She has absolute trust in daddy can do anything at this point. My older, my older kids are like, eh, there's a few things. Um, she gets up on top of the kitchen table, and she will run off that, that kitchen table and jump at me, having every ounce of faith that I'm going to grab her, even when I'm not ready. I mean, I've had some close ones. I'm like, ah, we can't do this. She has just unabandoned faith that daddy is there. Now, on the other hand, for me, anybody like going to the state fair or any carnivals? Yeah. I have zero faith in carnival rides. Yeah. I have serious trust issues with fair rides. We're not going to get into numbers, but I'm on the heavier end of people. Okay. I, I know that there were humans that put those things together. I do not trust that I'm not going to be on that Ferris wheel. It's just going to fall. That I'm going to be, you remember those rocket, even in, at Disney World, that thing that spins you around like this, like the elephant. Oh, no. It's just going to come loose and shoot me off. Disney, I'm nervous enough. You give me on a fair ride? That thing is half ticket, cocking a little bit while I'm going around. My, my lack of faith affects my life because I do not get on fair rides. I get tickets, let my kids go. I don't ride them. That's kind of weird. I'm like, hey, kids, you guys die. No, they're fine with it. I'm nervous. Faith changes your life in the way in which you live. And so as we walk by faith, it affects the way we live in this world and it affects and is demonstrated in the way that we live with God. Do we jump off the table without abandon? Because he said, come. Look, I don't tell my four-year-old to do it. She still does it. But don't test God. But if he says jump, do you? Do you trust him? Trusting him might not being foolish, but it might mean that you actually take a step of faith when God leads you that direction. How do we see faith evidenced in the lives of the disciples here? Well, first and foremost, they have faith in God because they have believed in his salvation through Jesus. It says that the Holy Spirit would come on them. The very first act of faith that anybody ever demonstrates is that they would place their faith in him for salvation. That they would believe that as he mentioned, the Messiah dies and that, right, that forgiveness is available for sin, that he's telling the truth. That's the first step of submission to the kingdom. That's the first step of faith. And the disciples in this passage, it doesn't say that they've done this, but they have been his disciples for some time. And they've seen him resurrect. And in John, the chapter of John, in chapter 6 is a really crazy chapter because it's like one of these seat-clearing sermons Jesus is giving. He's talking about some stuff that's really hard for people to take. They don't know what to think. He has a crowd surrounding them, and most of them leave. And he turns around to his disciples who are still sitting there, almost like just befuddled. They're like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And he asked these questions. He says, are you also going to leave me? And Peter speaks up, because he's always the first one. And he says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. 
The first step of faith is that we come to be convinced that he is the Holy One of God, that his words are of eternal life, that no matter how hard they come, no matter difficult they are, no matter how challenging it might be, we trust and know that ultimately he is the one in which life exists. So we see in the first part of Acts that they are baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's a demonstration of their faith that God then sends them his power in him. It's not for everybody, but for those who have already professed that he is Lord and are following after him. Those are the ones he promises the Spirit to. So first and foremost, they believe in his salvation. Secondly, they, they are obedient to his command. Look at the rest of this this uh, passage is here, 9 through 14. In, in verse 4, he tells them explicitly, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. You know what they did in 9 through 14? They didn't leave Jerusalem. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way you've seen him going. He's... They're sitting there going, guys, the same thing I would do. Come on, you admit that too. You're standing there and Jesus goes up into heaven. You're going to be like, well, I'm going to go about the business of the kingdom. No. You're going to be standing there like, did you see is that, did that really? Did you see? Did you see that? This, this is for real, right? <laughs> I would. But two men show. God knows where they are. Jesus knows. He's like, look, spark them on. Move them along. So they come down and say, hey, God's given you something. Christ has told you something. He's going to come back. He's going to return the same way you saw him. Now go be obedient. So what did they do in verse 12? They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And they were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they went... They saw Jesus ascend. Before he left, he said, go to Jerusalem and stay. I'm going to send my power. And then they went to Jerusalem, and they waited. They stayed. Jesus gave a clear command, and faith in Jesus means believing that his commands are for our good. I went to a military academy, military school for college. I like pain, I guess. It's a good school, but there was rules, lots of rules. One of the fun things about the rules was finding a way that you could break them. It's kind of a challenge during four years. But if you broke a serious enough rule, they made you come in for what was called a special report. And on a special report, you needed to come in and you needed to shoot straight on what really happened. We had a very strict honor court system. If you lied, you cheated, you stealed, you were kicked out. And there was something they referred to. They say when you came in to give your special, you had to get to the point what happened and what did you do and there was something that had a reference for this, anything else would be quibbling. Quibbling. It's kind of like, well, I, I know Jesus said to do this. He said to go to Jerusalem, but I mean, my mom is, she's not feeling well. I'm going to go over here. I need to do this. There's some other reason. We're hedging our bet. Whenever we do these things, whenever we compromise, whenever we see what God has clearly told us is right and true and good, we're telling Jesus we don't trust him and that we know better. And I'm not talking about the rules that men try to lay down on you. I'm not talking about when you go into a space and you hear from someone who's preaching like myself and I'm telling you what the Bible says and that you hear it and take and go, good, that's me obeying Jesus. I am, I, I, there are some people that are not telling the truth. And 
they're, they're getting it wrong. They're lying. We were told in this text that, that wolves would come and deceive people. So we know that's the case. But even those in the text here, in the story, Paul, who's an apostle, came and he preached and he taught and he's authoritative, but they checked behind him. It says they searched the scriptures to see if he was saying what was true. It's incumbent on us as believers not to just believe all we're told, but to see truly what Jesus is commanding us. And then when we're convinced, we obey. But what about uncertainty? What about uncertainty? Are there things in life that are uncertain? Are there areas of life that we're just not super clear? Are there decisions we make that aren't are outlined in the text? This doesn't tell me, make sure you change your oil every 5,000 miles. There is not something in here that says, make sure you eat three squares of meals a day. There is not an exercise guide in here. There's not explicit text about all those kinds of things. There is principles and there is highest moral values, but there's not detail. And so what do we do? It doesn't tell you what college to go to. It doesn't where city to live in. It doesn't tell you who should be your friends. None of that is in the Bible. There's uncertainty in life. But the apostles demonstrate here what you do in uncertainty too. Look at this. The third thing we see is that they are dependent on him in prayer. When things are uncertain, what do they do? They go back to Jerusalem and they pray. They were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Prayer demonstrates our dependence on God. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a coincidence in culture that, that usually when, they, when we talk about prayer, it's a last-ditch effort. Right? In football, what's a Hail Mary? You're just throwing up a prayer. That's what they say, right? You're throwing up a prayer. You're about to lose. It's one last shot. We've got seconds on the clock. Maybe we'll catch it in the end zone. Maybe we won't. It's a Hail Mary. But for a believer, prayer is our first and most powerful weapon. Lack of prayer tells God, I got this. When we don't feel the need to come to him, we are saying that we have control and we can handle the situation. But a praying life is a life of dependence on God. A life walking by faith in Christ to build his church. And then what do we see in this final chapters as well? In uncertainty, what do they do? They trust in his sovereignty. Now, this is an odd story somewhat. 15 through 26, I'm not going to, I'm going to read this story, but I'm not going to tell you this is a prescription for how you make your decisions. I'd rather us look at what is, what are they articulating here that is demonstrable for us to apply to our life. Look what happens in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were among, who were together was about 120. And said, brothers and sisters, it's necessary that the scriptures be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell head first, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all residents of Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field is called hakeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, if you're not familiar with what's going on here, Judas is the one who has betrayed Jesus. And he was one of the original 12 apostles that are following after Christ. And what, Paul, what Peter is pointing to is that he betrayed his post as an apostle, abandoned that to betray Jesus, and that he also describes what we, what we at least know from this account, that he went in his, really, sorrow. I mean, he, he knows what he did. 
and, and killed himself. But Peter's pointing here is he's saying that we know Judas did this, but we need to replace him. Look at this. For it's written in the book of Psalms. Let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Peter, either through Jesus' teaching at some point or through just simply his knowledge and learning in Scripture, has come to the conclusion and conviction we need to replace Judas. There's 12 apostles. There were 12 tribes. Jesus talked to the apostles that they would essentially start the church as representatives and judges of the tribes. So he wanted to have that number 12 restored, just like the psalm says, let someone else take his position. And so in verse 21, he comes to a decision point. He says, therefore, therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it's necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. He says, listen, to be an apostle, we have to be somebody who's seen and known and witnessed Jesus. If we're going to be those who are the twelve, they need to be one of these men. One of these people to be a witness. And in verse 23, they proposed two people, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. So Joseph called Barsabbas, known as Justice, is one dude. And the Matthias is kind of like, and then there's Matthias. It don't sound like he's too excited about Matthias. I don't know, I'm just reading into the text, but it seems like he got a lot of nicknames for the other guy. That's usually the guy everybody likes, I don't know. All right, they're like, Joseph, my boy, called Barsabbas, who also known as Justice, depending on who's his friend. And then there's Matthias. We know him too. 24. Then they prayed. We got these two guys, Lord. You know everyone's heart. Show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place of this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. And in verse 26, they cast lots for them. Drew dice, drew straws. It's random. And the lot fell on Matthias, the guy that apparently nobody's homeboys with. And he was added to the eleven. So what do we take away from this? When you have a really important decision and you can't decide what college you want to apply to or whether you want to go for your master's or maybe if you want to uh, uh, take a job over here, I say roll dice. Is that what we take away from this? I'm not putting that on the table. I think what the disciples are demonstrating is there are many things in our life that we come to a decision point where the options are not clearly obedience or disobedience. You know, something simple as lunch. That's not, well, depends on what kind of what I do to my body if I'm being healthy. But options on the table are not always an issue of sin. And the disciples said, we have justice. We have Joseph. I'm sorry. We have Matthias. And they came to a point of decision. And honestly, for you and I, when we come to that decision point, isn't, is it really more than random once we get to Christian wisdom and application, we have to make a choice. And for the disciples, they decided the way we're going to do that is we're going to draw straws. And we're going to trust that in God's sovereignty, we're not going to make the wrong decision. That no matter what we make, the two options on the table, both are okay. Let God be sovereign. Let Christ rule and let him guide our decision. So do you flip a coin to make a decision? Do you make tough decisions that way? I don't. Do you want to trust God and you want to pray the same prayer and flip a coin? Godspeed. But we know in Romans 8, 28 that Paul tells us that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. 
that as we trust in his sovereignty, he will not lead us astray. As we're obedient to his command, he is going to honor and glorify himself in our lives. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, pastor, theologian from way back when, is quoted as saying, Believe in Jesus and trust him, and you shall never be made ashamed of your confidence. Believe in Jesus and trust him, and you shall never be made ashamed of your confidence. Often we allow anxiety and stress to invade our life because we get to the point of decision and we say, I don't know which way to go. Is it going to wreck my life if I take this path? Which one's the right one? What's going to set me up for success? But God is telling us in Christ that if we trust in his sovereignty, he will lead us to all good things. Jesus advances his kingdom, God's kingdom, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the faith of his disciples. Are there areas of your life that you're failing to believe in Christ and trust in him? What are the places in which you need to be able to take a step of faith and just say, God, I know you got this, and Jesus, you're going to guide me and lead me as I trust and follow after you? I pray that we would all be people who, as the apostles throughout the book of Acts, continued in their simple faith of obedience to Christ, would be a part of his work advancing his kingdom through us and in us. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for the time you've given us this morning. I'm thankful for all that you've done.